Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We have a very exciting episode today. I'm Kennedy Cooper. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about making progress within our government, uh, getting out bad reps who don't really support the mainline values of the people or especially the Democratic Party and getting in good people. We've talked a lot about the Justice Democrats, but one group we've talked about a bit less is brand new Congress. And excitingly, we have a brand new Congress candidate here today with us to talk about his campaign, brand new Congress, and trying to change the system and make something that works for more people. And that is Shanyat Chowdhury. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. I, I love doing these podcasts. It really gives me good opportunities to get uh, to know more folks outside of like, you know, your usual uh, establishment media. So this is this. That's kind of what we've been trying to do with uh, with this podcast is reach out to people that aren't aren't really heard by the typical um, media figures and give them a voice in politics. And thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Let's get this going. Absolutely. Uh, so, Sean, why don't you start off by just introducing yourself a little bit and uh, talking about how you came to uh, be a candidate for New York's 5th Congressional District. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my friends just call me Sean for sure. And I live in Southside, Jamaica, Queens. I live in public housing. And, uh, you know, growing up, I, I've been living in working class neighborhoods my whole life. And I moved around a lot growing up as a kid. And I got to really see uh, the perspectives of just like being poor. And, uh, you know, I come from an immigrant family. My, both my parents immigrated from Bangladesh. And they strive for this American dream. So they saved up enough money to buy this nice suburban home being the only brand family there we got to really see the privileges of like some people have we ended up losing our home in the 2007 like mm -hmm. in the early beginnings of the financial mm -hmm. crisis so the great and the great recession and we lost our home um and that's when we kind of were just like traumatized by the system itself yeah. and my parents kind of just lost hope after that you know as being the eldest of, of three from an immigrant family there's always like this unwritten code of having the responsibility to to provide for my family to help make ends meet so um, shortly after high school, actually ended up joining the Marine Corps, not out of like sure. being an American, but just because out of survival, like, you know, getting an opportunity for education, healthcare, all that. Um, and it wasn't until I came back, I realized nothing had changed. A lot of my friends were still stuck where they were. Um, you know, some went to jail, some, you know, died because of poverty. And I realized mm -hmm. there's something really wrong with the system. Um, so I guess just over time, um, I ended up just shortly after graduating uh, from John Jay College in sociology, I ended up um, working in the New York State Assembly, focusing on policies around criminal justice reform, housing rights and climate change. Um, and then I ended up getting on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign uh, and I worked on her campaign as her staffer. So I worked with her really close, um, got to see the ins and outs of what it's like being a candidate every day. Uh, so I saw the challenges and I kind of questioned, like, is this something I could maybe do one day? Um, so I had it in the back of my head. Um, and then when I went down to Tijuana back in December, actually almost a year ago, um, went down to organize with, uh, with, uh, with a bunch of other mm -hmm. folks to help the um, asylum seekers who were stuck mm -hmm. at the border. And, um, you know, that's when it kind of really hit me. Uh, you know, we spoke with a lot of families, heard this, the stories of, you know, how and you know why they were escaping their poverty and, and government persecution from Central America. When you hear these stories about how mothers and children are coming up to the border, it should tell you that they have nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and my opponent, Gregory Meeks, him being on the Committee for Foreign Affairs, um, this is something I went to him about to address. And New York Five has 70% of immigrants. Uh, we've had many ice raids happening. And I'm like, hey, listen, like, you know, you're on the, on, you're on the Committee for Foreign Affairs. Can you have a strong stance on immigration, at least? And, you know, because the Trump administration is doing everything they can to ensure that, you know, immigrants aren't able to, to come here to escape whatever they're escaping from. So he was just saying how we just need to create more bed space in these mm. detention centers. Mm. And to, to hear that was just really disheartening. Yeah. When, you know, I was telling him, like, we need to make sure that we expedite these asylum cases. We make sure that their human rights were inviolated, make sure that they had proper medical treatment. He did not address any of those points, and he just left it at that. So um, that kind of did it for me. Um, and then, we, you know, with the housing crisis, actually, you know, again, going back to my family losing our home in 2007, it's kind of, we're kind of reliving what's going on almost 10 years later now of the housing crisis. Our, our market is not as strong as people think. New York Five has some of the highest rates of home foreclosures in the country. And it's something that we need to, to battle, you know? I think that, you know, it's more than challenging an incumbent. It's about dismantling a, an oppressive system. Um, but in order to do that, we need to challenge those who enable it. Of course, yeah. So you talked about uh, housing and living through the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely lived through that and Kennedy lived through that. And both of us were basically of age when that hit in 2007. Can you yeah. talk about like your personal experiences of yeah. when, how that hit you and was it, did it, was it out of nowhere? Were you politically aware at the time and like, how did it affect you and your family? Yeah, for sure. I think I was only about 13. I was like a freshman in high school at the time. So I wasn't, I was just your average kid, honestly. I was never involved into like politics. My dad growing up was a socialist, but for me, like I just wasn't ever interested in like politics or government. Um, but both my parents were uh, part of the labor movement. Um, they were both members of local 54, 100, which are uh, casino workers, uh, labor organizations. So I started noticing my dad would just come home, started telling me like, man, out of nowhere. And this, we were living in South Jersey at the time. So my, my, both my parents were working in Atlantic City. My father was working at casinos that Trump did own. So we just started hearing stories like, man, families are starting to get laid off from work. And he was just kind of concerned that he would be next. And so he started taking me out to these rallies where like we're protesting and we're screaming with, thousands of other families trying to like protect our livelihood so i realized man this is just not my family being impacted by this but it's others and these are like close family friends who are about who are on the brink of losing their jobs and their homes um my parents couldn't afford to keep you know to pay the mortgage off for the home you know seeing all that then my dad got laid off then he got sick from lyme disease so mm. my mother uh she started picking up extra shifts uh just working at a Sheraton Hotel, just like as a hotel maid. Seeing all that really was just like disheartening. And I just wasn't really sure what was going to happen to us at the time. And then unfortunately, I got my first job like on the weekends, uh, just working at a flea market. So I was like making like $5 an hour, providing whatever I can to like make sure we're able to pay, to pay off our bills. Right, um, just trying to help. Yeah, but you know, it wasn't enough. Um, so mm -hmm. we had family from New York uh, come to us and, you know, they try to help however way they can. And um, I think they saw that there was really no uh, good outcome to the situation because our neighbors lost their home. Uh, we saw foreclosed signs. 
down the block and we knew it was going to happen to us. And then after my, both my parents lost their jobs, we realized that the only option was to just move back to New York and you know, start fresh. Um, and then when we did move back, we, my parents just kind of like got away from the movement. They kind of just want to stay, you know, uh, you know, stay quiet and just try to live a, a normal life. Um, so they were kind mm-hmm. of traumatized by it. And then that's when I started becoming more socially conscious and aware of like just how our politics, government uh, really impact us. Sure. So I'm very curious. We've talked with other interview guests and also amongst ourselves about kind of like hearing pro- about progressive ideas or about, or about hearing about socialism for the first time. And I have to say, I'm very fascinated by you saying that your dad was a socialist. And I'm kind of curious, mm-hmm. first of all, what you mean by that, if he was mm-hmm. like an old school, had red marks, or if it was uh, came from some other kind of background or something. Yeah. I mean, um, this this cycle, we've had a lot of socialist parents, like, like Kamala, both Kamala and uh, Buttigieg have, have had them, and they've kind of distanced themselves from their children. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so what, what, does your, what does your dad's kind of politics have an influence on you? Yeah, so my, you know, my parents are from Bangladesh, and it's a really, really young country. They only got their independence in 1971. So, uh, uh, you know, a spark from the liberation movement was this huge uh, communist and socialist movement that was going on over there. Um, and a lot of it was inspired by Maoism. And uh, my father actually started his own socialist political club at his university in Bangladesh. And they wow. threatened, they, yeah, they threatened to kick him nice. out if he didn't close it down. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Um, that's, so, yeah, that's the real shit right there. Yeah, that's some real shit. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, that's my, great. my father, he was pretty, um, you know, even to this day, like he's, he's not as socialist today. I think he's kind of, you know, as he's gotten all these came a little bit more senile uh but but you know he's really excited by bernie and then just really motivated to get back into it after you know after now that i'm running now so he's kind of feel like this is like his lifelong prophecy for him (laughs) um so So he's very excited about your campaign and support that's that's amazing that's 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 wonderful that's that's like the best story anyone could tell practically right there you know (laughs) just like yeah like that with that kind of just a family touch it's just beautiful to see really like you don't see enough of that in positive progressive politics yeah you know it's Mm -hmm. odd because growing up my father and i really didn't have a close relationship actually a lot of the times i feel like he was just absent (laughs) in like a lot of my Mm -hmm. activities and my social life wasn't really until this where he was like I want to get involved. I'm like, wow, dad, like it's only been 27 years. But, <laughs> That's uh, really sweet. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah. let's get back into more specific politics, For sure. um, especially in regards to housing. Cause I feel like this is a very big issue. Um, we already kind of touched on just how big 2007, 2008, the recession and the housing market crash was a little bit, but uh, I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the ways that we could prevent something like that from happening again and that you specifically would prevent something like that from happening again? Yeah, for sure. I, so I, I'm, I look at it in, in a threefold. So the one thing we need to do is one, break up the big banks. I think we need to break up big banks and support more community banks. Um, you know, not one big financial institution should have all the power in the world all the money in the world to the point where we're on the brink of another economic crisis. 
So, you know, I think that with community banks, they're the ones who could, are one, are owned by the community. Um, they invest into the community to make sure that they create jobs and that they make sure that people from the community can, can buy homes. Um, and then also, you know, I think the Dodd-Frank itself, it's, it's uh, I, I don't think it's the greatest of solution. I think it's a moderate solution point where it's enough where we can stop the loopholes from, um, you know, from moderate uh, Democrats, Republicans to, to, you know, really pull it apart. Um, my opponent, Gregory Meeks, actually, he supports this Madden Fix bill. So the Madden Fix bill, what it does is that it gives big banks and payday lenders the, the power and the abil- ability to impose unlimited amounts of, of uh, interest rates on families who need loans. Mm-hmm. Mind you, most working families are already in debt. So, you know, not only are they not able to pay off their, their mortgage loans, but also medical, you know, so we're talking about education, medical, all these other necessities right. that they're already in debt for. Um, and the fact that big, powerful institutions have the ability to really prey on working families, um, I, I just think that's morally wrong. And then I look into the federal homes guarantee. So the federal homes guarantee um, is... It starts to really come into life by a lot of representatives, uh, by Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, uh, AOC herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking to create more than 12 million new um, public housing for working families and impacted communities. Um, and with that comes with addressing uh, racist policies like redlining and, you know, making sure that we take away these pra- uh, predatory practices like uh, payday lending. Uh, it comes with reparations uh, with, from impacted communities. Uh, who are predominantly uh, are people of color. Um, and then lastly, making sure that we transition our public housing into the new Green New Deal economy. And then lastly, mm-hmm. public housing. My, me, myself, I live in public housing inside Jamaica, Queens. A lot of people who live in public housing were always are kind of like just going to the sidelines or forgotten about and like resources that we need. Um, and, you know, we want to make sure that RAD doesn't happen. Uh, Gregory Meeks, he's a big proponent of privatizing public housing. Um, I think that we need ownership. I think the tenants themselves need to have ownership of where they live. And when you have ownership of where you live, you can invest into it. So one, I think uh, tenants who live in public housing should be able to own it. Um, Section three of the HUD Act actually does say that people who live in uh, public housing should have jobs in uh, public housing. And a a lot of that does not happen. Um, a lot of the jobs, like repairments, um, these are being outsourced to private contractors. So I think that when you create a federal jobs program for free for uh, public housing tenants, we're given the opportunity to obtain trade skills to where they could actually get jobs within public housing, uh, unionize, and work where they live. Because no one else, again, mm-hmm. is going to have better investment than the people that live here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, so King just of to kind of clarify. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Brandon. No, I, I mean, if you'd like to go ahead, I can. But no, no, I mean, it's fine. Speaking of investments, I uh, got to say, Greg Meeks has gotten sizable investments from people who I think make the kind of policies that you've been talking about basically impossible. I mean, Queens is kind of in the shadow of Wall Street. I guess the entire state of New York is. When it comes to yeah. donations and things like that, um, what is your feeling on can someone be an honest actor 
while taking money from Wall Street? Or do you think it's a corrupting influence or is it something in between? Oh, absolutely not. It's, it's blatantly obvious that when you know where an elected official is, uh, you know, you know where they're taking money from, they are going to be representing uh, not the constituents, but the people on Wall Street. It, it's blatantly obvious. Um, he's made it publicly known that he doesn't really care about Literally, there is a constituent who I've spoken with. She's mentioned how he's told her that at an event that he doesn't really care about um, doing any kind of grassroots organizing or work with the people, the constituents, because they're not giving him the votes and not giving him the money. Um, these are like everyday people that he's not really talking to. Um, and the people that do give him money are the people who are, uh, you know, are, are in his pocket and he's doing their bidding. Um, and we can even look at a recent example. Uh, Comcast. So Comcast, mm-hmm. there's an issue right now with the Supreme Court, actually. Um, they just had a hearing recently, Comcast versus Byron Hill. And Comcast paid $2,000. They pay $2,000 every cycle to Gregory Mee. And we know that the max donation is 2800 So in, in that perspective, that's a lot of money for, for donation. Um, so as so, Byron... Byron Allen, he's suing Comcast for racial discrimination because they wouldn't uh, agree to a contract to allow his network to, to be broadcasted on, on Comcast. Um, so he's claiming racial discrimination under the Civil Rights Act of 1886. Only very few members of the Congressional Black Caucus came out in support of him. Very few. And the one member, and, and if you see the members who did not come out in support, they were taking money from Comcast. One of them was Gregory Meeks. So I think that that should tell you a story that um, where their moral obli- you know, obligations are when it comes to civil rights movement and social justice rights and then compared to where they're taking money from. And they'll, yeah. be, you know, they'll still be silent when, you know, be brave about a certain issue, they're going to stay silent. So I think that that says enough. Definitely. Um, now to sort of pivot to a different issue, one of the things on your issues page is that you call for abolition of ICE. And that's something that's sort of become a progressive rallying cry at the um, inhumanity of Trump's sort of detention of undocumented migrants. Now, uh, some, some, have gone, uh, a little, some have gone varying degrees farther, calling for the abolition of the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, and even like uh, candidates like Joshua Collins calling for the abolition of the CIA. So uh, I'm, I'm just curious as to where you stand on those issues and sort of what, what would you ideally, what would you want to abolish and what would you not? How far do you go? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to go as far as possible to ensure that human rights are protected. Um, you know, living in a, in a police state is not the way to go. Um, me myself as a candidate, I'm like always learning about, you know, how we can really navigate in, in this society. So, um, you know, I'm I'm going as far as like abolishing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, custom borders patrol, and I think we should have open borders. It's definitely worked with the uh, the uh, Newark model in Europe. Um, I don't see, you know, we've had open borders before where you know people were able to really, you know, cross. I mean, in the uh, in the early in the early 1800s, the time between an immigrant arriving in the U.S. and becoming a citizen was like three weeks. Right. Like there weren't a lot of, you know, uh, 
a lot of really um, challenges to really come here. I, I, you know, I don't see how. And even that, as it got harder, it wasn't actually criminalized until like the 90s. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, so, we made it harder. You know, we yeah. made it harder with the drug wars. We made it harder oh, yeah. by uh, colonizing and imperializing Central South America. Um, yeah. So we know that when, when Republicans especially talk about immigrations, uh, immigrants coming here, you know, raping our children, our, our, you know, our women and, and children and being criminals, we know that these are all fear mongering tactics. Mm-hmm. Nothing about this has anything to do with what they're talking about because they haven't even been down there they send our military down there to you know to overthrow their governments to kill the people and i think that it's our fault for the instability that these nations have so i think we need to readdress everything that's going on down there we need to um, also pull off the sanctions on venezuela mm-hmm. um, so we have a lot to really address and a lot of it is our fault and i think it's time that the U.S. Uh, holds ourselves accountable for the things we've done. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny that you mentioned like the not even having been there thing, because not only have they not been to a lot of these countries that they're pilfering um, in any significant capacity, but they also haven't spent enough time even in the border states. I live in one of the border states, and anybody who lives in a border state can tell you none of us want this crap. Like, we're yeah. all really tired of this already. <laughs> we have ICE everywhere. You can't go anywhere near the border without dealing with ICE agents, and it's a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. Nobody yeah. likes it. And, and again, the people that are making these decisions, they don't come down here. They don't talk to us. They talk to some guy in Alabama who's like, I'm worried about immigrants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was watching this video the other day about a Canadian border town that because of... They so they fucked up when drawing the border and the US Mexico border or the US Canada border in this town goes directly across a street. And like a few decades ago, it was perfectly accepted for like the the American residents to head over to the Canadian side and back and relations were friendly and everything was fine. But now like post 9-11, they've locked that shit down. Like there's CCTV cameras, and if, if you even like look like you're about to cross the road and go into the into the other country like they got they have uh ice agents and cbp agents fucking on you and this is just this is just for canada our safe and by safe i mean white uh neighbor um i think sean already put it best when he said that you know a police state is not the way to go (laughs) absolutely (laughs) yeah i'm i mean yeah i mean we're kind of forgetting that what we don't realize is that most people that immigrate here don't really want to leave their homes but because of the certain circumstances that they have you know the the poverty and how the government has been overthrown uh it's not safe where they are you know um Mm -hmm. so of course a lot of people are gonna are gonna come here because you know where we have as being one of the richest nations in the world like we have the capacity to bring in people and actually take care of them we we have that capacity and i think it's just wrong that we're one are making people suffer because of our wrongdoings. Um, if you believe that there were human rights abuses at the border, do you think that the people who ordered or implemented those abuses should be prosecuted? And if so, to what degree? Uh, so here's the thing about prosecution. And I'm, I'm trying to like figure this out because I'm all for abolishing prisons too. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. So. 
Yeah. How do you square <laughs> that circle then personally? Yeah. I mean, like, it's definitely a conflict that I have internally because, you know, I think that if, honestly, if police spend as much time, you know, collaring white collar criminals uh, compared to, you know, working poor people, then we'd see a lot more investment into our communities because rich people continuously, they tend to get away with everything. But at the same time, I don't want to keep enabling a system that's already done harm to, to generations, uh, especially to you know, the most marginalized people. And I think if we continue to uphold the system, we're going to see that that system's continue to be enabled. So, I mean, how do we hold these people accountable is something I'm trying to like really, really figure out. Um, and, but I think on a larger scale, you know, I think the U.S. definitely has the budget where there's, when we ha- where there's money, we definitely have the money and the priorities to, to shift it to where we need to reparate uh, indigenous lands, indigenous people, um, African-American uh, inheritance. I think these are things we need to address. Um, and that's one big way of holding anybody who's had money and power accountable. So kind of building on that, when you say prison abolition, this is another sort of progressive watchword that's become a slogan lately. And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'm just going to give you some space here. What does prison abolition mean to you? Yeah, so prison abolition to me means like to not really have the police state and not being surveillance mm-hmm. by, you know, by, by the government who's, who has no investment but to, to throw you into these cages and just to make profit off of it. Um, and I think, again, that's just wrong. Uh, you know, most people that go in and out of, out of prison tend to go back within the next three years because they come out with no foundation, no, no resources for education or job opportunities or mental health. Um, and we're put them in these situations. It's, we see that the prison industrial complex is not correctional. It's a cyclical system. Um, and only it's just made to make profits um, mm-hmm. off of poor working black and brown people. It's just, just wrong. I think that's a great answer. But could you get even just a little bit more specific? Because I think a lot of times when you bring up p- prison ab- abolition on the street um, to just like, you know, average voter, mm-hmm. um, they tend to immediately jump to some sort of shocking images in their mind. I mean, like the yeah. Purge movies, maybe, that, you know? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I, maybe you could kind of get into just a little bit deeper because I, sure. I know that this is a, a core issue on your, your site and you do have some deeper thoughts. If I do something, what happens to me? <laughs> like, and, and what things actually require something to happen, maybe even? Right. So, I mean, you know, most people who do get caught up in criminal-like behavior and activity are the same people who tend to get caught up uh, who are actually victims of, like, past trauma you know, or any kind of poverty. A lot of, there's a huge correlation between crime and poverty and, and traumatization and, and crime. So I think we need to really address the core issues of these uh, by ensuring that, you know, people who do get caught, we don't want to prosecute people. I don't think that's the way to go, but we should provide them a space and opportunity to make sure that they are given the resources needed. So that way, when they do come back, um, you know, make sure that they are in a stable and uh, safe foundation to make sure they stay away from any kind of criminal activity to begin with. Um, so, so just kind of yeah, a, a I mean, fundamental move of the model of criminal justice from punitive to rehabilitative justice? Correct. Correct. And, you know, we, we've seen it, it does work 
in Europe, and I don't see why it can't work here. Like, it could definitely work. We just need to change the way, uh, you know, we really approach uh, just how we treat individuals in, in general. I think if we constantly look at as, uh, individuals as, as criminals, we're going to continue to treat them as criminals. Um, so we need to really start changing his mindset. And I think that could, that could really turn the tables with, um, you know, as we progress into the next four or eight years. I, I think that we could definitely see a change uh, for his abolition. Let's talk a little bit more about changing the mindset. Because I think that there's like kind of a serious and very deeply steeped mm-hmm. into American culture mm-hmm. problem with sort of paranoia for the neighbor, paranoia for the stranger. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you walk to the grocery store and you see the guy who looks a little sketchy and a lot of people's minds are immediately like, maybe he's a murderer, maybe he's a rapist. Mm-hmm. In reality, maybe he's nothing. Maybe he's a harmless drug addict just trying to get through his day. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, maybe he's a, a, a petty thief who has committed some crimes in the past, but is trying to do better now and right. deserves some kind of, you know... Maybe he didn't do shit. Hey, maybe he didn't do shit and he just came from his job and he's fucking tired. <laughs> right. Yeah, he just, he just got off a construction job. So how do, you, how do you overcome that sort of like basic paranoia that I think is so endemic to so much of American society? Yeah, I mean, again, I think where there's money is priorities. And we see that uh, whenever you walk into a more affluent, rich white neighborhood people have opportunities people have jobs people have the great schools in the neighborhoods and when you have that kind of foundation stability yes you know more likely than not you're gonna live uh you know you're not gonna get caught up in criminal behavior so why do working poor working class poor neighborhoods do not have these resources so we need to ask these questions because we don't ask these questions when we're getting tax you know tax cuts for the rich we don't ask these questions when we're funding uh you know these endless wars but whenever it comes to making sure we need money for our, our schools in poor working class neighborhoods, there's always a question about how much money we can give. Or when there's ever a question about how we can save these mom and pop shops and, you know, and then put like these big corporations in place, there's always questions, always doubt um, whenever it's anything beneficial for working poor families. So yeah. I think as long as we treat, as long as we mm-hmm. treat, you know, black and brown people the same way as rich, affluent white people, then I think we start seeing changes. So we need to really, the money is there. And I don't want to really hear like the BS excuses. Oh, how are we going to pay for it? It's, honest, it's utter bullshit. The money yeah. is there. <laughs> you know, at state yeah. and federal level, the money is there. Yeah, definitely. It's very true. And I think that's a great point about, you know, that when somebody says, oh, we need to uh, hire 600 more police officers in our city, no one says, well, how are we going to pay for it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. New, you know, New York City, actually, most recently, they just hired like 300 new cops on, on th- I think 3,000, something like that. It's some a showbiz, like number, big number. And these cops have been like uh, arresting poor people who are just re- selling food for like two dollars. Like these are just like your desserts, your go, you know, your to go food for two dollars. Yeah. And, and because they, they can't afford to have a license, they're still selling it for two dollars. The cops ended up arresting them anyways. So it's like, yeah. though, if you could pay money to get new cops into the subways, uh, there's definitely money to make sure that immigrants have licenses that they need so they can make a living. I mean, I, yeah. I think the, the exact number was 
they were uh, spending $250 million to hire cops to beat uh, fare evasion, which was losing them a projected yeah. $200 million a year. Yeah, mind you, these uh, CEOs on the board, they continue to get pay raises every year while our fare hikes are increasing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think they need a cut in their paycheck, maybe. Maybe that could yeah, work Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe if these public services actually work for the public? Maybe yeah. we could cut their yeah. pay and make the whole thing uh, free and without fares. Just kidding. Unless. Yeah. <laughs> Some of what you've touched on kind of breaks out of uh, the local and a little bit into foreign policy. Uh, I think that yeah. strain of paranoia also affects who we go to war with and when and how and how long it takes. Um. Mm-hmm. I definitely think we're kind of lucky because our generation is pro- is, is pretty exhausted with uh, military adventures. And I mean, Leia, I think we've been at war since she was born or pretty close to it. Um, I know that you personally support uh, repealing the AUMF. Uh, and for people who don't yes. know, this is basically i'm slightly oversimplifying it's basically a declaration from congress that the president can do whatever he wants as long as it's under the banner of the war on terror um and i know that mattis and tillerson and a few other people have argued that since the war on terror is always changing and name brands are shifting and things like that um this banner is still very useful because otherwise you have to come back and get a new authorization for every individual group that's under this banner of this war what do you think about that and do you think that congress is just kind of refusing to take responsibility for this stuff um yeah i mean yeah i mean to begin with that um congress should ask i mean we're talking about having democratic process uh you know we don't live in an authoritarian state so yeah no one person should have the the right and decision-making power, something to that capacity to really go into war. We've seen that it has devastated us for generations. When we went into Iraq, we went to Afghanistan, and these are pointless wars, and we've lost millions of, of, millions of lives, you know, not just our, our armed forces, but innocent civilians in other nations lost their lives because of an unjust war that was made for profits. We know it was these wars are made for profits. Mm-hmm. We have lost over, these wars have cost us over $5.6 trillion. That, you know, again, all that money could have been used for our resources here. So it's just, it's absurd that any one person should have the authority to make, uh, this is like a life and death situation decision. Not, and like, this is a decision not just over one life. We're talking about millions of lives, you know? So why can why is only that one person can make that kind of decision? I think that, you know, that's how it was beforehand. Congress had the, had the, um, the ability to discuss these, um, these procedures in the House, and I think that's what we need to get back to. I think part of it is, like, there are people still getting dragged over the coals for their vote on the Iraq War, and there aren't many votes to get dragged over the coals about now. So it's almost like a way to not be responsible if something goes wrong um because you're talking about like the responsibility for those decisions but there's also like blame to go around when a decision doesn't go well you know we can't undermine uh the american voters because if they see that if congress members 
don't want to take accountability and they don't want to take responsibility for what the president's doing, then I guarantee you for the next two years, every two years, these voters will put in somebody to represent them who will stand up to, you know, to a, a president who's obviously not capable of leading a nation. You've mentioned on your website that you want to reduce aid to countries that are committing human rights violations. Um, there yes. are a lot of countries that we have sensitive relationships with that are committing human rights violations. So um, I don't I don't feel like I'm super putting you on the spot because you probably know four or five of these countries. Turkey. Mm -hmm. Do you consider them yeah. human rights violators? Yes. Saudi Arabia. Yes. Israel. Yes. China. China. Yes. Um, are you are you worried about like this causing a lot of of diplomatic pressure, or do you think this will improve their behavior or isolate them, or what? Or is it is it more about us and cleaning the moral scale? What's the what What do you see as the goal of of lowering our investment in those countries? Like to what end? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit a combination, a little bit of all that. You know, we have we have the United Nations, we have the Universal Human Rights Declaration for a purpose, for a reason, because we've seen that, um, you know, dictators and, and, and governments um, have been able to get away with killing their peoples without being held accountable. Um, and no one's really speaking up for the for the Muslims in China. No one's really speaking up for the Palestinians. Um, so someone has to really stand up. And I think that you know, the U.S. being a, a leader in the United Nations, we could absolutely get other, come, come together with other nations to hold other nations accountable for what they're doing. It's just utterly long. Uh, you know, Palestinians should absolutely have the same rights as Israelis. Like, I'm some, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm um, anti-Israel. I think that uh, Israelis should have equal rights as Palestinians and vice versa. While we're brushing on the topic of Israel-Palestine, do you support a two-state solution or something else? <sighs> I keep going back and forth on this one, to be honest. Um, this is something I'm still trying to figure out. I, I think that at the end of the day, uh, that's something the Palestinian people would have to figure out what they want. Um, I don't think it's uh, in the best interest or in the best, really, responsibility of the U.S. or any other nation to make that kind of decision. Um, but I absolutely do think mm -hmm. that they have the right to have free, equal, and equitable, equitable rights. Um, but again, I think that I go, I go back and forth on it. Uh, some days I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, they should have a one-state solution. And other times I'm like, I don't know. Uh, maybe a two-state solution would be best. I don't know. It's something that it's, it's, it is a complicated situation. Um, and it's something I'm continuing learn, continuously learning about. But I honestly do believe that Palestinians should have right. And I do support the BDS movement. Um, that's another thing I do support because that's something that should be protected by the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Sean, I think it's interesting um, having this conversation and some of the other political conversations we've had with uh, interview guests as well. Uh, we've touched on a lot of topics today that basically would have been taboo for a candidate to talk about 10 years yeah. ago. <laughs> and I'm kind of curious to hear um, about uh, from you, you're part of this brand new Congress movement. So you're really getting to see uh, a lot of not just from your perspective of your campaign, but like how this movement is shaping up on a national scale. 
Um, what do you think is changing and how far do you think that this, this change is going to go? Because some people kind of have this uh, belief that, you know, we're kind of on this infinite path to the left now. And other people think the opposite that, you know, yes, we're going to make some changes, but ultimately there will be pushback and we won't go very yeah. far. I mean, you know, change has always been slow and it's always will be. But I think what we're, we're starting to see the shift of, I think, just everyday people really being able to find the courage to stand up and say that they will not stand up and you know just wait around for what's going on because all our and that, what's great about brand new congress is that i'm connecting with candidates across the country who have different experiences different you know work experience lived experiences and we all have one thing in common and that's that our destinies are intertwined you know we're all fighting the same we're all fighting the same master at the end of the day. We're all fighting the same systematic oppression. Um, and that we need, that the only way we could ever make change is that if we just participate on, on, a, huge, on a huge massive scale. We've seen that it could happen. Um, you know, with 2018, we've seen that someone like Bernie, who's giving another shot, you know, like we know that we're, we're getting there. You know, we just need more people to stand up and find inspiration uh, and just be positive about it. It does take a lot of work. And I don't think it's going to end. I think as long as we keep getting this momentum going, we are going to see a shift in where regardless of, you know, party affiliation, like I was, I was an independent, uh, you know, when Bernie ran, I couldn't vote for him in the primary in 2016, but I, you know, I changed to a Democrat and I, and I think that as long as your convictions are just about fighting for, you know, the working people, fighting up for indigenous uh, black people, I, I think that when you fight for what is right, uh, people are going to really feel that. They're going to feel inspired by that. And I think that yeah. um, more people will will just stand up and run for office, honestly. That's what's going to happen. We're going to see more people with different experiences who haven't even ran for office before, who haven't had uh, previous elected official office experience before. They're going to be running for these positions because they know that their voice and their courage is going to speak to the millions who don't have the voice to stand up. Yeah. So obviously, I think one of the reasons that you are so inspired when you talk about this stuff is because you were a part of, as you touched on at the very beginning of this interview, one of the most inspirational uh, progressive campaigns of recent times, or perhaps ever in American history, uh, which is, of course, I'm talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm really curious about one thing in mm -hmm. particular. Did you kind of feel the magic of that campaign right away? Or, or was it sort of like, at the start, was it more of a, let's do this and see what happens? Like, I'm just kind of curious if it had a, a sense of, uh, purpose and, and destiny from the beginning or if it was something that sort of came together? Yeah, I'm someone who's very optimistic. So I tend to manifest all this positive energy into people that I, you know, that I believe in personally. So um, when I first heard about her, actually, um, one of my best friends actually worked with her at the restaurant she was working at previously before she ran for office. And this is very early on. And she had mentioned, hey, my my coworkers think about running for Congress, you know, you may want to, you know, maybe help her out. And at the time, that's, that's when I started, like, getting into politics a little bit. So I just kept it in the back of my head. And then months later down the road, I see her TYT interview. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, 
this person is like really talking the talk and like I just believe it. Like I could tell that she was uh that she was genuine and that she really meant what she was trying to fight for. So I just volunteered right away and I was interning at the time. I was interning at a at a law firm that's just as a record clerk. And I would leave work early just to go knock on doors, just to, you know, call folks and let them know about the election. Um and you could tell like the, the energy on the streets was different. When you talk to each person door to door, when you, you know, see uh, the events that she's at, like her energy, her her demeanor just said that she was going to like literally knock down the house, you know, just like her documentary, like she's going to knock down the house. Um, and I just felt like she was going to win. There were a lot of people, obviously, she was the underdog, you know, she didn't have the money. She didn't have the name recognition at the time. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of doubters, um, even, you know, she could, I can't speak for her, but she could maybe say that she even had, you know, she, she even had some doubt winning. I think a lot of people on the team did. Um, but I was, I was sold from the get go that, uh, that she was going to win just by door knocking alone, you know, something. And that's like the, in the grassroots work itself, you know, you're going door to door, you see that no one has ever heard of Joel Crowley. You see that a lot of people even like Joel Crowley. Um, you know, him being the third most, fourth most powerful Democrat in the House. What has that meant to people in New York 14? Nothing. It just meant that he's been able to take in millions of dollars from real estate developers who've come in and displaced working people from New York 14. And that's what we're seeing in other districts throughout the country, including New York. So, yeah, absolutely. She, she inspired uh, me because she was just a regular person running for office. Um, and she just had the courage of standing yeah. up and, you know, to fight for what was right. All right. Shania Chowdhury, what do you need to knock down the house? <laughs> I need money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, someone who's running a grassroots campaign, uh, you know, we're taking only public donations. So that means from friends, family, neighbors, or, you know, your friends, whoever. We need every dollar to, to really go against this machine because, um, for one, my opponent is taking money from the finance, insurance industries, real estate industries. Um, and we need to stand up with the power of the people to show that, um, you know, we have the capacity and the viability to take him on. So if, you know, if people can donate, that would be so great. Five, ten, ten, twenty dollars is going a long way. Uh, you can visit www.shanyat2020.com. Uh, there's a contribution form there. You can also follow me on Instagram uh, and Twitter at shanyat2020. Um, you know, just spread the message out and you know, whatever help we can get from the public. This is what it's all about. It's just really come together to really make a social generation yeah. change. Well, you heard them, folks. Uh, give us those websites and the Twitter one more time, just for everybody listening's sake. www.shanyat2020.com And the Instagram and Twitter handles are shanyat2020. That'll be in yep. the show notes. So, uh, you know. Excellent. Even if you're, yeah, for people who, yeah, people who could probably can't spell that out. Right. <laughs> it's it's just you click right. it, you go. Yeah, it's yeah, fun. it's great, it's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's been. But we do like to make sure we have a very engaged sure. audience, and part of what we're trying to do is, you know, build a larger progressive network, uh, because if only people in Queens, you know, in New York's fifth district, know about your candidacy, it's not as likely to take off. And of course, part of what made Alexandria. Ocasio-Cortez's candidacy yeah. so special was its sort of viral quality that captured not just the hearts and minds of the people of her district, but the hearts and minds of the nation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I get told a lot, oh, you know, don't worry about going 
to other communities and talk about your campaign, no one's going to care. But the truth is, is that people do care because, again, a lot of folks that uh, face situations and hardships in other communities, uh, we face the same things over here. So, um, you know, they may not be able to vote, but folks are able to come out here and, and volunteer or nice. even throw dollars to help because we need the backing of the people to get this, you know, get us through. Yeah, exactly. You know, even my team, like, I, you know, one thing I've made a conscious effort is making sure that our team reflected the community. So uh, a lot of people, you know, volunteering, like, unlimited hours on the campaign just because they believe in it are young college kids, actually, believe it or not. Like, uh, a lot of them are, um, these may be their, the first or second time uh, doing campaign work, but because they have the, the motivation and, and the passion to make systemic change because they know that eventually you know, every decision we make today is going to impact them tomorrow. And that at one point um, that they all have the responsibility to make generational change for the, for the next, uh, for the next people who are coming up into society. Well, Sean, you have a fascinating story. You have a very interesting campaign. Um, I'm strongly encouraging all of our audience to give this guy your support. He really deserves it. And it has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it, y'all. You have a good one. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, everyone. This has been Not Safe for Wonks. As always, our guest was Shanyat Chowdhury. I am Kennedy Cooper. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Bye-bye. See ya.